Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And you know, we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops, who will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket. To those who are treading lightly into our hazy DevSecOps world of rainbow shundering unicorns. Welcome to Beer Sec Ops. I'm Steve Jaguar, and my guest today is Andrew Martin from Control Plane. Andy to his friends. I ran into Andy at a container security strategy session, and I gotta say I was pretty blown away by his depth and breadth, I would say, of, of the cloud native space, security within that, container security. He knew something about everything, and in some areas he could go all day. Now, I, I could probably do about 20 different podcasts just with the one guy. Uh, but I'm lucky enough to get him just for the one for now. Andy, if you're listening, I'm going to try and get you back to go into sort of an origin story on himself because he himself is he's a pretty interesting guy. And also dive into to something that's kind of a hot topic at the moment, and that is GitOps, specifically to do with uh, something he was talking about during this session called WeWorks Flux. So here we go. Andy Martin. All right, cool. Thanks for doing this. Uh, it's going to be a pretty, um, I don't know, unstructured. Uh, I hope that's okay. That's that's the kind of life we lead. I, and as soon as we have an hour, I kind of just wanted to dive in and do kind of a contributor profile on you because I think I've seen you speak in a variety of different places. Uh, I've obviously, we, we met last week at a, or the week before, I don't know, it seems ages now, at an undisclosed uh, meeting to talk about container security strategy. Uh, you, that was where you mentioned WeWorks Flux, which got me very interested, and I want to talk about GitOps, et cetera, with you. But first, I would really like to find out, because I don't know myself, kind of a Andrew Martin origin story. Like I know, I know some of it. I have a few specific questions, but can you give me a you on a postcard kind of history? If we start yeah. with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was uh, very fortunate to be the first employee at a startup in Bristol, um, more or less straight out of university, and where well, I did uh, computer science, for its worth. And at that startup, I had the privilege of uh, wearing many hats. So over the course of the startup lifetime, um, by the name of Bright Pearl, uh, the company expanded uh, into the US. It raised um, $45 million in funding. And I was at the focal point of, uh, of development, of operations, of security, database administration, bits of architecture, and of course, sort of growing culture of uh, a vaguely successful startup. And that really helped me in, in more ways than I can describe. What year was that? Um, let me ask you. Uh, that was 2007, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, so from there, we had some, um, some fabulous people came to work there. Um, at one stage, we had uh, a gentleman who um, just really taught me how to work compassionately with somebody. He, he was so far superior to me in 
experience and skill sets, and he was um, he, he'd been leading um, uh, an entire arm of an organization from a development perspective. And, uh, and he came to work with us as, as a contractor on his first contract role. And he really showed me how to interact with people in typically now what is described as nonviolent communication. But it's just uh, everything is very inquisitive. And um, uh, the, the, the question is, oh, I wonder why this is like that, as opposed to that's incorrect. And, and th- this approach to sort of collaboration and working with people um, uh, really, really has lasted with me throughout my career. I, I think it's uh, it's the best way to um, ferment a sense of camaraderie and uh, and, and work in, in a compassionate and human way with other people. Um, now, the upshot of this was that I ended up um, writing a lot of code. Um, at the beginning of the sort of infrastructure as code movement as well, and uh, also migrating bare metal servers onto the nascent um, EU West One AWS data center. And subsequently, this meant um, cutting my teeth on all the infrastructure as code tooling, um, trying to backfill for a lack of automated testing around a lot of these things, and building out pipelines for infrastructure in addition to pipelines for applications and deployment. And this was all kind of relatively relatively new at, at this stage. Um, I spent five years there and uh, had a wonderful time that the culture of the company was, was excellent. And then, uh, so five years of that, and then I moved to London, where I began quite a varied set of engagements. Um, I, I worked writing unit tests for existing code um, for a few different organizations, including um, News UK and Visa Europe. That sounds and, like my hell on earth. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that easy, I have to say. Um, that there are cases when uh, telling people that despite the sort of uh, subjective beauty of their code, objectively, it was <laughs> untestable. Uh, a very difficult conversation to have. Subjective uh, beauty. That's very yes. good. <laughs> um, so yeah, there, there we are. Lots of refactoring to expose methods that were considered not important enough to test, but from a business perspective were critical to um, the survivability of, of the system um, under maintenance or uh, additional features, etc. This, so you, this is where you, sorry, this is where you get to exercise your nonviolent communication. <laughs> exactly. Had I not been set up by the uh, my gentleman friend in Bristol, then um, I, I'm sure there would have been uh, blood on the keyboard. Before <laughs> no okay, sorry. sorry, go ahead. This then put me in a position um, where I was essentially attempting to bring, and I, I feel quality assurance is a very overloaded word, but essentially bring quality into um, development teams who were less than enamored of the prospect. Um, and this, of course, by extension, um, was also shipping security features. So at one stage, I found myself uh, crossing the Rubicon and actually having to refactor the code in order to make it testable, um, obviously, without the domain expertise and knowledge having built this in the first place, there was also the requirement to really fully grok the system before um, attempting to write any of these um, extensions of code, let's say, 
or, or refactors. Um, so, so that was all well and good. Um, continuing in this vein took me to British Gas, uh, where the project that I was working on there, um, this time as a, as a build and quality engineer, uh, was using Docker. And that was Docker 0.8 at the time. Um, not being production ready had <laughs> multiple... Uh, <laughs> um, not being production ready had multiple hangovers into uh, not only the project, but of course, as we know, the speed of containerization and the runtimes that grew up around it. Um, it, it was really a very exciting time to be, be working with Docker. It also gave me my first taste of uh, building a specific product um, in order to sate the desire of an industry. Uh, and by that, I mean everybody, when Docker first emerged, built a container registry. And over the years, each of those container registries has been acquired and subsumed into a larger organization. Um, I, I found that very interesting to watch, the way that the, uh, the, the, the golden meal ticket, essentially, at that time was... Uh, Build and be acquired. Um, yeah. So uh, that, you, that put, you become a bit of a containerization historian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, I, obviously, I've always had a very strong community focus. Um, when I was twenty or so, I used to drive from Bristol to London to attend OWASP meetings because I couldn't, that, that, that's the open web application security project. For, for, I, I hope people listening to this know what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, should they, um, should they not? Well, it is an open organization that just thoroughly supports security, communication, and education um, in, in many, many different ways, uh, in, including meetups all around the world and, uh, and conferences, et cetera. So I, I would drive down to, to these specific London chapter OWASP meetups. Um, and as I kind of remained for, for much of my career, just astounded at, at the effort people put in to communicate not only open source, but open security, essentially open information. People no longer consider um, that the benefits of, of hiding things. And we saw this really change as a mindset with the uh, the U.S. ban on export-grade cryptography. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, that that was something that we couldn't use complex or we couldn't use secure ciphers throughout the nineties um, unless we were in the United States. That changed when it became clear that that was compromising not only the security of adversaries but also of uh, of the, the, the common man. Um, and and this move towards open source security was kind of something that. Uh, Again, I saw emerge and just just thought it was the best thing since uh, bread was sliced. So, being part of this sort of community movement uh, throughout my career, I also ran some user groups in Bristol, and I I just I started to attend things when I when I moved to London um, from uh, a perennial interest and uh, desire for novelty. Um, it's part of what drives me, I'm sure. And this meant that uh, there was this emergent Docker scene that, that kind of uh, kind of grew up. Um, of course, everybody was struggling with multi-host network orchestration. Um, we had no service discovery built into anything at this time. And Swarm went some way to try and fix these things. 
um, but didn't didn't quite go the same distance that uh, emerging a year or so later Kubernetes did, um, and, and specifically by that the complexity of uh, the, the flexibility of deployment models. I think, um, especially the pod concept, um, it immediately made multiple types of multi-container deployment possible where Swarm was unable to offer anything really to compete. And uh, yeah, so subsequently deployed uh, deployed Kubernetes 1.0, um, had 1.2 in production with uh, with regulated clients, and um, and and that was it really. I I ended up uh, um, I did some work for the UK government uh, for the UK Home Office um, at the beginning of twenty. Ooh, when was this? I could check your LinkedIn. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 2015 or, or 16, 16, I think, um, which again was uh, based on Kubernetes um, for, for a regulated industry. And uh, subsequently, I spent two years working on that project, which was, um, so that, that was June 2016, my, my LinkedIn claims. Um, <laughs> so yeah, two years spent at the UK Home Office, uh, really getting under the hood of containerizing and, and Kubernetes security, uh, dealing with air gap systems, public cloud, et cetera. And then finally, after um, sort of persisting with, uh, with public speaking and education, um, realized I probably had enough momentum to uh, start the control plane. So um, my co-founder, Luke Bond, and I began the company in October 2017, contracted back into the home office, uh, they, they very graciously uh, refused to let us leave. And, um, yeah, so subsequently um, focus on regulated industries uh, and sort of higher compliance requirements for Kubernetes, along with uh, a number of individuals that uh, I've, I've met throughout my career, but, but especially um, some who worked to uh, get the audit and compliance for those systems at the home office. Um, passing accreditation. So, uh, yeah, and uh, that sort of brings me happily to today where um, I just wish I had more time for engineering, but uh, I'm still furiously hacking away in, in all my spare time. So where did, so you've mentioned, uh, it, it seems quite clear to me that you must possess no, more knowledge about containerization and orchestration and the cloud native environment than I can possibly ever imagine that you probably forgot more than you could possibly convey. And, but where, where, so at what point is there a, is there a moment where you were playing in these environments and in this new landscape and you realized that security is a problem and how do I apply the my, my prior knowledge things you acquired through your experience at OWASP and, and just personal research into this new environment that where you realized it's maybe it's not going to work and new things need new, new thinking new strategy needs to be applied absolutely um, the Initial containerized dream was uh, as popularized by CoreOS, Giphy, which is Google infrastructure for everybody. And the idea here was that because Borg runs these huge um, sort of multiple cells per continent, and cells can be thought of as a virtualized data center almost, uh, which is self-contained, etc. And within Borg, you have containerization, but you also have um, virtual machines sitting within containers, um, which, is, which is the way that uh, Google have deployed 
everything from Gmail to search for, for many years. And CoreOS perpetuated this idea that one could multi-tenant all of their workloads at all security levels in the same container system. Um, now, having been working with Docker from quite early on and having dealt with some um, screaming backflips through flaming hoops to <laughs> actually sort of align some pieces of functionality, um, it, it was clear to me that there were multiple ways in which to essentially disable any of Docker's benefits, um, including the, uh, the, the double hyphen privileged flag, which I think is um, one of the most dangerous flags in the history of computing, which <laughs> disables all the things that we think of as containers. It turns off namespaces. It puts the PID as close to the host as possible, disables app armor, disables setcom, um, grants all capabilities to the container, gives access to all the host's devices. And these are not things you can do with a VM. A, a VM will emulate the BIOS of a system and uh, perhaps also emulate um, as, much of, uh, as much of the hardware as possible. So it became clear to me that although we have these incredible benefits of, I mean, specifically um, the resource uh, isolation and the bundling of the file system, so the, all, all the developer UX that Docker layered on top, it was still possible to end up in a much worse situation with containers. Um, but then on the flip side, these new features were shipping. Um, and Jesse Frizzell is responsible for a huge number of these. So, for example, Docker ships um, a, a capabilities model. So you can turn capabilities on and off. Oh, well, that, that, that's quite nice. Still a little opaque to a user. Uh, then they ship a default app armor and set comp profile that turns off maybe 60% of all the Linux system calls because many are antiquated and unnecessary um, from a modern application perspective. And, and suddenly, suddenly everything snaps. Everything clicks, sorry. Suddenly everything clicks with a single process per container and this high fidelity, um, very granular application of policy, we can suddenly secure individual processes in a useful easy to reason about and easily deployable manner. Um, and, and that was the point where suddenly everything made sense. VMs are great, but we pay all this cost for the isolation that we get. Actually, we can re, say re we, we can actually we can emulate that same level of security using Linux kernel privileges and Linux security modules and find ourselves in a very responsive and um, I find ourselves in a situation where we can react very quickly to security events because the nature of the layered namespaces gives us a huge amount of control over the contents of the container. And when we're running the single process per container model, this essentially gives us multiple layers of lockdown around a single process. And, and this is what I found very exciting. And, and this is, uh, for me, the instructive difference between a container and a VM. We have a very thin paintbrush with which to decorate our security functionality instead of this old paint roller that we used to have to use. It's a very good analogy. <laughs> I had to pull it out at the last minute, but there we go. Yeah. <laughs> you got there. You got there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I had a, a conversation earlier today where somebody uh, just 
because I had to describe what my job was. And I said, uh, container security. I said, can, can you give me an elevator version of that? And I went, no. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you don't already understand, if you, if you haven't already had the epiphany of understanding what's required there, I don't know if I can describe everything that you just said in the, in the past 10 minutes, unless it's a really big building. <laughs> but yeah, that was really, that was really well put. Thanks. Uh, thank, uh, I think what I'm, I'm uh, no, I'm going to just go off piece a little bit because I think a lot of people who speak to people in industry and want to get to know who they are behind the scenes, never find out like, what do you do for fun when you're not, I know this is fun. Uh, <laughs> But are there things you do to unwind when you're not thinking about security and, and get ops and other things that you do? Do you go skiing? Do you play guitar? Do you gymnastics? Do you <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I, uh, I spent many years as um, various forms of musician. Um, I, have, uh, I have a number of bass guitars. I am an aficionado of, uh, of the funk. Um, <laughs> okay. Craig Charles fan. Oh yes. Yeah. Nice. He keeps them spinning. Um, yeah. So I, I love, uh, I love funk music. I also, if something has a break beat, generally that, that tends to be, um, what I've discovered is my, uh, my funky motivation. So also I played in, um, sort of, uh, SoCal type punk rock bands throughout my youth. Um, then, uh, lots of, um, I, I used to produce, uh, some music as well. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a very keen cyclist, which in London is uh, synonymous with um, uh, suicide. I think suicide. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy that. In fact, uh, Liz Rice turned me on to uh, Zwift, which is yes. uh, indoor indoor bike racing. Um, so I, I'm now a keen Zwifter as well. Uh, which, cool. is, <laughs> which is awfully good fun. Um, and, and then I, I, I do lots of uh, slightly esoteric things. Um, I enjoy, enjoy memory training um, and trying to memorize things. So, so there's various, various non-Sherlock uh, memory palace type techniques and systems for cataloging and remembering things, um, mostly poetry and prose. But uh, I find that all, all very entertaining, um, and uh, yeah, a, a huge amount of reading when I when I find the time. And then, of course, um, I am just perennially fascinated by uh, by technology. So I also build um, I, I build lots of things to kind of improve uh, either either my life or retention. Or so I, I, I kind of uh, wire lots of um, <laughs> I, I wire lots of little services together to, to help me do things like to remind me of things or to tweet favorite quotes at me or uh, sort of catalog all the interesting words that I've learned in the last few months, this sort of thing. I like so, it. Uh, generally, generally hacking on something. Yeah, kind of life hacking, but technologically. Yeah, precisely. I like it. That sounds really cool. I'm, uh, I'd like to sit here and discuss your bass guitars at, at length, but... Uh, we're halfway through, and so I'm going to have to shift on to the, to the, the proper subject matter. I will, I will finish that. Do you know a band from Bristol called The Allergies? I don't actually know. All right, there you go. That's my, that's my gift to you, my, my musical oh, very good. 
Um, Craig Charles spins them quite often and they're modern funk, but kind of a bit of a retro 90s rap kind of weird thing in there. Um, yeah, definitely worth it. Excellent. Do you prefer Andrew or Andy? Um, formally, I'm, I'm actually Andrew, but uh, informally, always Andy. Okay. Do you mind if I go with Andy? By all means. <laughs> all right. That was the implication, yeah. All right, cool. So when we last met, uh, you introduced very briefly something called WeWorks Flux, and then you sent, uh, since then sent me a very interesting white paper that, thank you for doing that, by the way, so that meant I didn't have to go and, I don't know, jump through whatever marketing hoops I would have had to do to get to that. Uh, and it's been fascinating. I like the way you described the cloud-native system in the intro and GitHub, GitOps. I've seen lots of people to try and describe what GitOps are. Um, and I thought, that's where I kind of want to dive in with you. You can use, you can make references to the um, white paper, which once this is released as a podcast, I'm going to put that uh, a link to that so other people can go and read read your work and, and any other further works you'd like to add as a uh, sort of references. But is that a good place to start? Just letting, because if we're going to get into securing or hardening GitOps and various tools that are available to do that, should we start with an introduction to what that means to anybody who's listening and may not know what that is? Absolutely. Um, so GitOps is an extension of XYZ as code. So mm -hmm. it's based on the premise that we live in a world where um, we have gone away from FTPing into servers to move files around. Instead, we want to do some sensible atomic unit of deployment. And if we want evidence of what that deployment was, then it should have been checked into version control at some point. And that's really a shift that we've only seen in the last sort of 20 years or so, because Git itself is only 15 or 20 years old. And before that, the technologies we used were not very developer-friendly. So over the past 20 years or so, we've kind of moved to a position where people do check things into version control. And that is the initial precursor for um, a, a GitOps-based system. Just things in version control, which makes perfect sense. So then we're trying to deploy some infrastructure. We started to move those bash scripts into Terraform, previously CloudFormation. And at this point, when we start to look at the amount of things that are not stored as code somewhere, not in Git, it, it's not really very much because we have the source code for our applications, we have our deployment pipelines, we have our infrastructure deployment and provisioning, which may just be Terraform against a public cloud provider, but nevertheless is still codified. It still sits there as code. And so what, what's really the last thing? Well, we don't really have the application deployment manifests, but maybe we say, yeah, I, I want these versions here. But once Kubernetes turned up, we're no longer SSHing on servers and using sort of a puppet or Ansible style thing to pull binaries and start them up or maybe run them under an init system. Instead, we've gone the same way with application deployments as we went with infrastructure deployments. Everything has gone to a declarative file format. Um, in this case, that format is the Kubernetes YAML API entities. So why is that a good thing? Well, it means that the entire 
system can be defined declaratively. Now, of course, any declarative system will tend towards becoming an imperative one. Any DSL uh, is enabled to fully scope everything that's required. But Kubernetes does this relatively well. Um, it's While it's technically declarative, of course, there's plenty of scope for um, embedding uh, bash scripts, essentially, into uh, into config maps or, or into uh, init containers or pod definitions. So it, it's not as strictly drawn a line as, uh, as a traditional DSL may be considered. So we're now in a position where we have a declarative representation of the entire system um, from, um, from the code that's wrapped up into an immutable container artifact through to the template for deploying one pod through to the deployment, which marshals a number of those pods with a replica set and runs them with a scheduler on a cluster. So really, what we want is a way for that all that declarative code to just be pushed to Kubernetes. And the simplistic way is kind of what, what everyone was doing. Take a load of code, have it in a number of different repositories, and at deployment time, have a bash script to check them all out and deploy certain file system paths from each directory. And, and there were a number of other tools that were doing similar-esque um, sort of GitOps-esque things. Um, one of them is a tool called Keel, and Keel will sit and watch a Docker registry, and when their new tag changes, it will just pull and deploy that tag. The problem with this approach is it moves a security boundary, which is around all code, into a Docker registry. So it requires us to manage our uh, authentication and our authorization for that Docker registry, as well as all the Git registries, repositories. So that's a slight detraction from the idea. Um, it also makes it more difficult to promote images because we're looking at promotion from a, oh, well, it's in this namespace. It's on Docker IO slash control plane slash my production app. Again, the problem there is that we need more nuance to actually um, build a workflow around a Docker image arriving in a registry or a repository. So what GitOps did and what we Flux by extension did was it, it took that concept and uh, it said, okay, well, we can watch a Docker registry, but why don't we watch a Git registry or a repository instead? Now, obviously, if we compare a container registry and a Git registry or a repository, we can see there are multiple layers that something like GitHub has added on top of Git. The Docker Hub has not added those on top of Docker. So what are we talking about? Uh, granular application of policy, branch protection, um, the, the whole branching um, and forking model, uh, all those all those nice things, the, uh, the commit messages that, that we can look at in the UI, uh, the enforcement of things, especially like GPG. So uh, can I, and then, so now you're getting into the, the, the many um, threat vectors for, uh, for anything Git-related in uh, mm -hmm. the history. And I, what I'd like to do is just back up and summarize because there's a lot to sort of unpack in what you just said there. As we're moving, as we, traditionally, and, I, and I'm doing this from the perspective of anybody who's listening who might be coming from a different uh, 
vein, be that, say, application security or info uh, information security. And there's kind of a, there's a move going on where everything is code, be that your application or be that your declarative infrastructure um, in the form of, say, Kubernetes, YAML files. And it seemed, it seemed almost counterintuitive when you said that the old way we used to do this was there'd be a bash script. And I'm like, right, okay, so who's, where's the bash script being maintained as code then? And who's ensuring that that is all in, in place? And, and there's, there, there can be this level, I, I, think, I don't know if who said it recently, there's this, this Russian doll or this inception type thing where we need code to manage the code to manage the code. And is that, is, is the idea here to try and replace us all with robots, essentially, so that, <laughs> so that there's something that, is, something that is watching what we're doing in one sense, updating our, our declarative infrastructure? Is that what we're doing? Or am I way off, way off base here? Because I just want to get a better... I tried not to go read all about WeWorks Flux so I could ask stupid questions intentionally. <laughs> uh, yeah, th so that is exactly correct. Um, the ambition is to uh, kill all humans and <laughs> worship our robot overlords. Um, I, actually, this was, this was the way that I sold myself for many years. Um, the, the job of an automator, and by that I mean somebody who is building repeatable processes, is to automate themselves out of a job. There should be no need for humans to manually intervene um, but instead, to build the quality into the product initially, to front load that human interaction, build something with a, a, a huge suite of sensible test cases. And huge in that context means um, not one more than is required to fulfill the contract uh, and not one less. And then send something off out into the world to do its thing. In this case, that thing is flux. Flux replaces the human who gets a change release note, goes and verifies that um, it, it's actually the right content and, and those things should be done, and then goes and makes sure that the deployment hits production and stays there. Now, these are obviously tasks that are high risk for an organization. Companies like uh, Knight Capital a few years ago suffered from uh, a deployment time problem where as a hedge fund and a high frequency trader uh, one of their deployments did not work so one of their maybe five or ten nodes that was supposed to be running the new software is suddenly running the old software while the new software is running everywhere else uh, this resulted in them hemorrhaging um, tens of millions of dollars uh, and eventually it sunk the company so th the point is deployment time is, is high operational risk for an organization. So the idea with something like Flux is you have this operator sitting inside the cluster. It can read the state of the cluster as defined with Kubernetes repo every few minutes, depending on how you configure it. You can set that to be a, a high, higher frequency. And it reads the changes, and it applies them to the Kubernetes API. Why is this a good thing? Well, first of all, it means Nobody requires read-write credentials to the Kubernetes API except for that operator. So for a regulated industry or a highly compliant system, this means immediately that management of credentials becomes a lot easier. 
of course, there still must be a break glass role in the event of something critical happening to the cluster. But by keeping everything uh, as much as possible internal to the cluster, we dramatically reduce its, its attack surface. And, and this, by extension, can also be applied to things like PKI. Um, it, in my opinion, it is safer to keep all key material inside a cluster rather than to pull organizational roots of trust from outside of an organization, or sorry, outside of a cluster, into the cluster, because then somebody else could falsify uh, a certificate that would get them access. So it's all part of this drive to put as much privileged information inside the cluster as possible and to not have to deal with anything privileged, especially credentials, outside. Okay. That was the answer I was kind of hoping that you were going to say. <laughs> as a, even if my, my, my question seemed a bit uh, abstract. I'm so, glad I got the right answer eventually. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was good. That's good. And I, my, my curious, where I'm curious about now is, so Weaver's, I, I understand what Weaver's what Flux is doing. Are there alternatives to what Flux is doing? Like that, perhaps, just in the interest of fair play? Or is it something that is actually cutting edge that there really isn't anything doing quite what it does right now? Yes, there are a couple of competitors. Um, GitOps, as terminology, has been popularized by Weaveworks. Um, but it is still close to the patterns and practices we were embracing before. So, for example, um, it's not too dissimilar from Puppet taking a manifest and setting the state of the things it has on disk. So run this service, remove this file, X, Y, Z. Now, it is slightly different because when Puppet communicates with the Linux system, it does so with its own set of APIs. It's deleting files, it's copying things into place, it's templating, X, Y, Z. What Flux does, it just acts as a conduit to pass configuration through to the Kubernetes API. It's not involved in reconciliation. It doesn't have any of that difficult code to deal with state changes and mutations. It's just saying, here's the set of configuration, take this API server. So from that perspective, GitOps as a thing, um, in my mind, is, is related to, uh, to that process. And it, it should be added that generally this is done via pull request. So mm -hmm. there is also an opportunity for uh, four eyes to examine the thing, people not to merge their own changes, etc. So what does that mean? That means that there are a couple of other projects doing similar things that have also adopted the, uh, the GitOps tag. Um, one is Argo CD, um, which is essentially a continuous delivery tool for Kubernetes um, based on all the same declarative principles. Um, and then Jenkins X, which is uh, the modernized version of Jenkins build server, also has uh, a number of um, GitOps features. Now, they are not quite GitOps in the way that I've described, um, but what they will do is, for example, with a microservices cluster, if one service is upgraded, then part of the Jenkins X GitOps piece will go and submit pull requests to all services that depend upon that upgraded service so that build pipelines can then run on those pull request branches and we can preemptively determine whether or not that is a safe pull request to merge. Mm. I mean, that's a super nice feature and not something that's 
um, exactly covered by um, by Flux. So so yeah, there, there is a community building up around this as, as a concept. Okay, good. I was kind of hoping you might throw Jenkins X in there. I might I might want to do a whole separate podcast just on on the subject of that because I've heard a wide variety of opinions on it. Okay, excellent. Um, I know I'm running out of time with you, Andy, and I know you've got another call in 10 minutes. Um, so is there anything I've, I missed that maybe you were hoping I'd give you a leading question so that you can do a reveal on something? Because I tend to miss something uh, <laughs> generally. Um, if I can get up via Git, can you, can you give us a summary in the time we have left? Absolutely. The central technology, of course, of GitOps is Git itself. And attacking Git takes on multiple dimensions. Git is, by definition, um, a protocol and, and a way of working. But then we have extra things that are built around Git. So, for example, we have the GitHub branch protections. And um, in GitHub itself, we have a different access model. So everything in Git can be edited, essentially. It, it's built for developers, and it's built so that we can change the date, we can change the committer. We can fraudulently claim that we are Linus Torvalds and make it appear as if we've committed as him. So in order to prevent that, we, uh, we can use GPG signing. Now, that doesn't prevent spoofing of, of those details, but it does give us some trust. And how that works is we sign the commit with a separate piece of metadata saying the person who signed this, Andy at controlplane.io, says that he approves of the content. And it's literally just that, a stamp of approval to say, yeah, I've read this, I trust it. So if I sign a fraudulent commit from Linus, then the chain of trust comes back to me and, and I have to then justify how I've done that. So while it's still not um, a watertight story, and it never can be because of the way Git is designed, it gives us more certainty than not using GPG signing. So if we use GPG signing for Git, of course, we then have a key management problem. Nobody likes PKI, nobody likes GPG. Um, but unfortunately, it's the best we have at the moment. So this prevents us from a number of impersonation attacks. It also gives us certainty when somebody is making destructive changes that they are actually uh, doing so with the trust of the person who has signed the commit. And then th this also extends into the usage that we have of, of GitHub or, or that sort of tool. Um, of course, there have been attacks on Git, so maintaining a recent version is paramount. And ultimately, the configurations afforded to us from um, tools like GitHub and, and GitLab at this stage are really quite varied. So we can apply branch protection and we can prevent people from, for example, committing without a GPG signature or force pushing their changes over a shared branch. So with this base level of hardening around our usage of Git, GitOps puts us in a position where we can have dramatically increased confidence in not only the deployment process, but also in every line of code that has been committed to Git via infrastructure as code or the application itself. And we know that we can tie that back to the individual who ideally was using a second factor authentication key in order to sign their commits. So it gives us a longer end-to-end -end story if we take advantage of all these things 
than we would have without signed commits and without an automated deployment process of this type. So I'm going to go ahead and make a suggestion. I know we are running out of time, and that is if I were to take everything you've suggested in terms of GitOps, infrastructure as code, security, um, ways in which you can use Git or harden Git to to be more appropriate for a, a GitOps type scenario, people might need help with this. So uh, it's probably a a good opportunity to suggest that you might be available for these sorts of things if anyone's listening. This does tap into your specialization, doesn't it? This isn't meant to be, I, mean, I figured you'd be nice enough to be on the show so I'm gonna, like, when, once this comes out, so I might as well say, this is kind of what you do, isn't it? You, you strategize and you build these environments for people. Yes, very much. We are focused on continuous delivery and that starts with continuous integration, it starts with developer experience, and at the point that continuous delivery as an engineering practice is well established in an organization, maturing that to a continuous security perspective, whereby security engineers are embedded in teams, they're involved in writing requirements, they're involved in signing off cards and features. At that point, a more draconian security feature, or for, uh, sorry, a security requirement, <laughs> such as um, let's prevent all egress from our production infrastructure because we are at um, increased risk of a breach, let's say. We've received some notification, and so we want to lock everything down. Without robust pipelines, without robust testing, and without certainty in the deployment style, an organization will struggle to implement that sort of very high difficulty and high risk change. However, if everything, if the house is in order and everything is well aligned before that stage, then having the culture of uh, test verification and experimentation will allow an organization to react more quickly to difficult and uh, eternally malleable um, security requirements as they change. So, yeah, it, this is the idea. Align everything, do the hard work first and then production time and uh, deployment time issues, especially security issues, are far easier to mitigate. Cool. And that's a great way to end this uh, right now. Thank you very much, Andy Martin, co-founder of Control Plane. I really appreciate you being on the show. I've learned, I've learned tons, and now I have to go read even more of your materials and watch more of your videos online. Um, yeah, that's been, it's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that has been this episode of Beer Sec Ops podcast powered by Aqua Security. I've been your host, Steve Jaguer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.